Grab a Bible, and if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 28, starting in verse 1. That's going to be on page 58 for using one of the Bibles we provided. Some Sundays sort of soar. Some Sundays bring new beginnings. This Sunday at Exodus, we get help for the mundane of a Monday by an unusual method. We're going to be examining this morning, as if you didn't think I was crazy enough, we're going to be examining this morning designer clothing. In fact, uh, we're going to kind of roll a little bit this morning like the late Joan Rivers and talk for over a half hour about one person's piece of clothing. All right, rolling out on the red carpet, except this red carpet isn't red from a manufacturing, it's red from blood. So all kinds of strange things going on, all of which is going to help you for your daily week, the mundane of your week, Monday through Friday. We've been working our way through the character's law, institutions, and now apparently apparel after the Exodus, Exodus 14 through chapter 40. And we're doing this to demonstrate that wherever you open your Bible, you can see a key facet of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and thus every part of the Bible is life-givingly, life-transformingly relevant to your life and to my life. And so we've summarized the gospel in these four successive facets, if you will. Uh, God only saves individuals through Jesus Christ to make us into a people who join with him in building an everlasting kingdom. God only through Jesus making a people who join with God, partnering with him in building an everlasting kingdom. Tremendous privilege. So far we've seen God save individuals in spectacular fashion, right? Red sea, bread and manna from the sky, a promised land, milk and honey. He's used a mediator named Moses who reminds us a little bit of Jesus. And he forms them into a people through a law of love. And then those people, together, bonded together, break that law in spectacular fashion, worshiping a golden calf. And it turns out, God anticipated this. When you read Exodus, though, it'd be easy to miss as you're reading through. It's probably not something you pick up on. It's probably something you read and then pass by pretty quickly because it's kind of mundane. Prior to the glitter and immediate gratification of the golden calf episode in Exodus chapter 32, we read that God made a way to return to him, not if, but when his people sinned. When they said, we want something else before we want you, God. We think something else will satisfy us before we think you're going to satisfy us, God. He had already anticipated this. And and just think on that truth for a moment. Consider, it's a scandalous truth, really. Almost an unconscionable truth. That God, the holy, awesome creator of the universe, knew his people would commit spiritual adultery would betray him ahead of time. Yet he still chose them, still accepted them, still pre-planned a way for them to return. Amazing. And he still does that for us today, as we'll see. It was through, the way they would return was through a substitutionary sacrifice. Somebody else had to pay if I didn't pay. Somebody else had to. And so it was, a clean, pure animal was laid on the altar for a now- unclean, impure person. And a substitute was made. 
Someone, though, had to stand in between God and us. Someone had to physically receive the sacrifice, slay the animal, and then offer it to God. And that person, standing in between us and God, is known as a priest. And you can read about him. For the first time, you read about these priests in Exodus 28 through 30. The priest then, and especially God's first priest, Aaron, anticipates Jesus Christ. Aaron anticipates Jesus Christ. Jesus allows each believer in him to regularly and routinely return to God. And how often do you find yourself having to return to God? Having to say, I'm sorry. Or just having to get up in the morning and know your heart is hardened and I need to get back to God. Jesus makes that possible. But that's foreshadowed in the person of Aaron, the priest Aaron. I want to give us a sense of what it would have been like. But first let me read, starting in verse 1, chapter 28. Then bring near to Aaron, your brother. Bring his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. In other words, they were to be noticed. There was something about these garments that would get our attention, be memorable, and remind us of something very important about God. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate it for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece and aphod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They, make, they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. So I want to give you a sense of what it would have been like for a Jewish person to regularly and routinely return to God. It would start with a short journey to one's local place of worship. As you approach this place of worship, it it would look different from other churches you've been to, which is not too hard to imagine, right? In here today? In fact, it looked a little bit like going to a, a county fair or, or like an indie music festival had just taken place. People who maybe camped out all night, returning to a place that looked like this. Also, not too hard to imagine here at the Harkwell Theater, where we have wonderful events such as the Red Sky populate our parking lot from time to time. You walk inside, and, and you, you know the gentleman who stands up front, who purportedly is going to teach you a little bit about God, and maybe even bring you closer to him, purportedly. You know, maybe, maybe you play basketball or golf with him. Maybe he coaches your kids sports or uh, you know him from some function or you're friends with his wife, whatever it might be. You know this guy, although today he looks a lot different than he does during the week. He's got this white robe over which looks something like an apron. And then resting on his head, he has a white turban. And that's not even the weirdest part, because you've seen religious priests before in different religions, whatever they might be. You've seen pictures of nothing else, people with turbans, robes, sashes, you know, those sorts of things, right? The most unusual part is he's wearing some kind of necklace that looks like something Flava Flav would wear. So it has like a gold chain attached to a bejeweled square box. And then those chains are attached to these kind of shoulder pads on top of which both are these onyx 
black onyx stones. It's like something an ancient Oakland Raider fan would wear, okay, on top of their shoulders. Something that looks pretty fierce for you NFL fans. And then the turban, when you look to his head, more glitter and glamour. You see a gold tiara-looking headband that says on it, in Hebrew, very visible, holy is the Lord. If your first reaction wasn't, whoa, take a U-turn, hop back in the car as you go on full-blown cult alert. If that's not your first reaction, like, whoa, I think I might not come back here. Then your, next, your other reaction would be, man, you know, I saw this bloke in a golf shirt and flip-flops or slippers just yesterday. Why does he have to dress like this today? Well, like, what is going on here? There would be two reasons why I would have to dress like this today. This garment reminds you that I'm wearing that you cannot approach God casually. A holy God casually. Come as you are will not do. Elaborate, big, and bold is needed to approach God. This garment says, left as you are, you are worse off than you think. So it's kind of hard news to take. You look at this garment, you think, wow, it takes a lot for God to accept me back into his presence. And this garment, the first thing I see when I walk in, is evidence of that. This guy's got to dress up like that. Second reason. All the precious stones, though, remind you that you are precious to him. In fact, each precious stone on the Flava Flav gold necklace represents one of the big 12 families amongst God's people, what they call tribes of Israel. In other words, God is saying, each of you are precious to me. And according to Ezekiel 28, each stone listed appeared in the first garden. And according to Revelation 21, each stone that appears here will appear in the last garden as well. In other words, I want you near to me. I want you in fellowship with me. I love you. You are precious to me. So to recap, Aaron's digs, the outfit of the high priest, you're worse off than you think. The beautiful precious stones, you're still more precious than you dare dream. Only in Jesus can both of these be true. You're worse off than you think, and yet you're so precious that I can bring you into fellowship with me forever that only in Jesus can both of these be true and stay true forever. This is why Jesus is our perfect and eternal high priest. You are worse off than you dared think. God putting on the flesh reminds us, left as we are, We're routinely worse off as we dared think. That's why he had to come. He had to clothe himself with flesh and come to us. Something's wrong. He has to do something big and bold to make it right. And yet, through his blood, we see that we're more precious than we dared dream. You see that? He takes upon himself all the worse off effects of sin to carry his precious people before a holy God forever into the holy of holies Forever. We see Jesus, guys, in Aaron's priestly garment. In a piece of clothing, you can see Jesus. The shoulders of the priestly garment. We see Jesus for routine shouldering of burdens in our life. In the breastplate, we see Jesus for the next best decision from the heart. 
the next and best decision you can make. In the headpiece that Jesus wears, we see Jesus who bears our daily guilt. So that's what we're going to see this morning. See, guys, God created for his people this powerful image. As it says here in his word, for glory and for beauty. So his people could remember that image when they departed from worship. So when they left, they would think in their minds that that was an interesting garment. That was both a sort of bizarre but also beautiful garment. That's why God created it. So when they left worship, they would remember it for the mundane of Mondays. Every day during the week. And he's created it for us for that purpose as well. So let's see that together. We, in Aaron's priestly garment, we first see Jesus for the routine shouldering of burdens. We see this in the shoulders. Check out verse 9 through 13 with me. You're going to have to have a Bible with you, okay? You shall take two onyx stones, two black onyx stones, engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of the names on one stone, the names of the other six on the other stone, and in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, so like a gold background, so they would stand out. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear the names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. God uses this image of shouldering fairly consistently in his word. And it's always with regard to shouldering people's burdens, carrying people's burdens or carrying them. Right? In the words of the great Samwise Gamgee to Frodo, I can't carry the, you know, your burdens, but I can't carry you. In that great moment. This is what we see repeatedly for shouldering from God's word. So, for instance, when the people later cross into the promised land, Over the Jordan River, God tells each tribe to take a stone, 12 in all, and put them on their shoulders to remember how God carried them across a raging river and into the promised land, Joshua chapter 4. It's to symbolize, just as I carried you, put this on your shoulders. The prophet Isaiah later shares about a child who will be born saying, quote, the government shall be upon his shoulders. In other words, he will bear the burden to govern this kingdom. And here, we see each name of each large family engraved on these stones of remembrance. It says that each time the high priest would go before God is a way of the high priest reminding God, God, shoulder their burdens. Shoulder their burdens. Indeed, shoulder them. So the high priest would ask this of God. Symbolically with what he was wearing. Jesus shoulders with you the routine burdens of any Monday, of your regular week. Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know what's interesting about this passage which you may have heard before, and I hope it's always so sweet to your soul, what it is to mine, is that Jesus doesn't say, I will throw off your yoke. He doesn't say, no yoke. He says, my yoke. Because Jesus shoulders every daily burden with us. Consider all the loads you carry, all the effects of sin in a fallen world. Illness, for instance. Think of all the illnesses that pass in and out of your lives, whether it's through you or a loved one. 
physical illnesses, but also mental illnesses now, social illnesses. And many scoff at what's now considered an illness. But I'm glad because such are defined and given name because they are now labeled consequences of life's most devastating disease, sin. All those mental and social illnesses are great examples or helpful examples to remember, yeah, we live in this fallen world and it's a burden. And so there's Jesus shouldering with you the praying, the believing that God will one day heal. We just don't know when. The carrying on with patience and compassion, maybe towards a loved one who endures that illness. Consider injustice in this world. I mean, I'm thinking about a sweet kid I know who's intelligent, who's kind, who's just could, could go places. But yeah, he's limited by the class he's in, the primary school he's a part of in this case, in his situation, primarily the family he was born into who can't really nurture him the way we would wish to be nurtured, to grow. Jesus shoulders these lost causes, friends. In fact, the most lost of causes were arguably Jesus' closest friends while he was here on earth. And so with you, you can support a person because Jesus shoulders the burden with you. I only think about how nothing works as it should in the life we live in. The best company networks glitch and lose information. Information, you need to fill out that report. What about the, the order that showed up late and in the wrong color? Even though you reminded the person from customer service three times what you wanted, and yet still... It's wrong. Or your child doesn't stay on his sleeping, napping, or eating schedule like they're supposed to. And neither does your spouse. They're, they get off the schedule as well. What's up with that? All effects of sin in this world. Every day something hits us that causes us to adjust, to sometimes scramble, in some cases stop everything we're doing. And having experienced that himself, Jesus, our advocate, is bringing to the Father's remembrance the frustration of being human. He's saying, Father, this is what it's like and it's hard. I've endured it. And just knowing the Son is constantly reminding the Father should bring rest for our souls. Knowing that he is there pleading with the Father always. Remember them. Remember what they're enduring. Remember what they're going through. Remember that they need help. Doesn't that give you rest? In Aaron's garment, then, we see routine shouldering of burdens. We also see Jesus for the next and best decision. Next, comma, best decision. We see this symbolized in the heart. Read with me starting in verses 15. I'll read through verses 21. You shall make a breastplate of judgment in skilled work. In the style of an ephod, you should make it of gold, purple, scarlet yarns, Moving on here to verse 16, it shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. In other words, he's saying it's going to be a square. You're going to make this square. It's going to be, you know, made in gold. You shall set in it four rows of stones. And he goes through all the stones, right? There shall be 12 stones with their names, according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. I'll skip down to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names on the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. 
In the breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and Thummim. They shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So ongoing, daily in other words. So where do I get this idea? Jesus for decision-making from the heart. A few ways. First of all, the word translated here, judgment, can also be translated not only in a legal sense of making a pronounced judgment, but in fact, judging between things, right? In other words, I judge that good. I judge that bad. I judge that helpful. I judge that unhelpful, right? We know these sorts of things in every choice we make in everyday life. This is the sort of way I think God means it here. A discernment kind of judgment. A judging between things. From the heart. Now the Hebrew understanding of heart is a little bit different than ours. We tend to think of heart as emotions. We associate it with feelings and emotions. Because in the Western world, we, we take ideas and we like, to, we like to associate them with concrete objects, right? So we say, a kind boy. He's such a sweet boy. He has a good what? Heart. He's got such a good heart. And so we make it very specific to a body part, which is why we still like emoticons today, right? We like to do emoticons instead of speaking the English language on text, right? Because we say, you know what? Um, I want to communicate that I'm ignorant of anything bad. But just in case, I will emoticon a monkey that has ear, you know, hands over his ears, mouth, and and eyes, all right? That works better. And so we use this still in the Western world, but it wasn't like that in the Hebrew world. In the Hebrew world, their understanding of a body part was much more holistic. It was representative generally oftentimes of a whole person, such is the case for the heart. The Hebrew understanding of the heart was as the person's control center. Not only their emotions, but also their thoughts and their will. In other words, all the parts that go into a person making a decision. But the clincher we read about, about decision-making, comes in verse 30. In the breast piece of judgment, you shall put something called the Urim and the Thummim. They're going to be on Aaron's heart every time he goes before the Lord. What is this, an Urim and Thummim? If you're in the Christian circles long enough, you might hear someone trying to make a joke about, let's get the Urim and Thummim out, and you're like, that, I don't know what that means. Let me tell you what it means. They were likely a white and black stone, ebony and ivory, together in perfect harmony, used in judging the next best decisions for the nation of Israel. What, was, what were we supposed to do next that would be best before you, God? We're not certain exactly how they were used. They were maybe some type of uh, like thrown like dice, almost. Uh, it seems, though, like the priest would bring before God a question, a yes or no question, and either throw them like dice or perhaps pull one out of his pocket Right, out of the, the breast piece pocket to get an answer. God's people knew then. And it's probably good that we don't know now, because if we did, you know, the Urim hotline, you know, the 1-800-Urim hotline would be more popular than Miss Cleo's 1-800 line, right? People would be like, 1-800-Urim hotline, tell me what I'm supposed to do, and then blame God if he gets it wrong. So we don't know, and that's a good thing, because we would treat God and his articles like magic. But what we do know is that Aaron brought on his heart before the Lord this divine receptor 
for decision-making. This divine tool for knowing what to do next. That was the whole idea. The heart of Jesus guides us now. The heart of Jesus helps us judge the next best decision without having to hold a silent retreat every time we need to make one. Because decisions we make every day are daily, right? 70 decisions a day the average person makes. It's close to 2 million decisions over a period of 70 years of your life. 2 million, 70 a day. They're daily, they're mundane. So we can't take time out to sort of be like, hold on one second, I'm going to go to my prayer closet, I'm going to take my Bible, I'm going to find a nice private garden, maybe with a waterfall, I'm going to come back and get back to you. You can't do that. But God has given us the heart of Jesus when we trust him. And that's, let me give you a few ways God uses to help us kind of access the heart of Jesus. Number one, he gives us Jesus' heart upon trusting our Savior. But it's a bleeding heart. It's a tender heart. It's a heart that is made tender by always beholding the cross. Ezekiel 36, 26, he removes from us a heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. Which reminds us, by the way, more important than what you choose, more important than what you do, is how you do it. Is how you carry out the decisions. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3. He says, always be ready to share your faith. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give you the reason. But do so with gentleness and respect. In other words, more important than stepping out and sharing your faith is loving the person you're sharing it with doing it with gentleness and respect. So remember, in every decision we make, more importantly, is how we do it. I frequently have to return to this truth because I struggle with this, guys. I, frequently on Mondays, I'm just trying to get things done, right? Like, I'm trying to, like, get the work week going. I'm, tr- I'm asking people for, for different favors or, or, or people are asking me for things. And I often, I'm ticking off a box, particularly as my week starts. And I don't often think about how can I build someone up? How can I best encourage someone as I'm asking them for help? Or how can I best show compassion for this person? Too often I treat things like a to-do list. But not if I do it with the heart of Jesus. second way you can access the heart of Jesus is the more habitually you do Jesus things for Jesus reasons, the better you'll make the next decision. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. So the more you do Jesus' things, the more you'll make better plans. The more you'll make better decisions. You do Jesus' things for Jesus' reasons, do them to the glory of God, you're going to make better decisions in your life. So get on a good streak. Make three or four decisions today for the glory of God, for the good of others. And see where that takes you. Watch if you don't make better decisions with what to do next. When your first decision is reading the words of Jesus, the more easy it is to filter out the next bad decisions. As when you make Jesus' word your first decision every morning, it's easy to filter out what you're not supposed to do. That's one way you get to the right decision. Finally, let me give you one more thought here. Flash your arrow prayers for help from Jesus. Ask him for help when you need to make a next decision. Think of how often Jesus did that in his ministry, by the way. I think at the time he provided food for the 5,000. He's just feeding hungry people. And he said, he, blessed, he turns to heaven and he prays, doesn't he? 
may we do likewise. Finally, in Aaron's garment, in Aaron's priestly garment, we see Jesus to bear our daily guilt. We see this in Jesus' headpiece. Read with me verses 36 to 38. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So across this band, like this tiara-like band on his turban, holy to the Lord was inscribed. And you shall fasten on it the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead, Aaron's forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. When it comes to routine burdens, next decisions in our life, we tend towards self sufficiency. We tend toward selfish deciding, right? And so when we bear burdens, we say to ourselves, I can do this. When we decide things, we normally take the most efficient route that will benefit self. Most of us are pretty good at troubleshooting in our lives. This might be why you have a job here in Grand Cayman, because you've done that pretty well for so long. When problems come along, you're pretty good at bearing that burden by your own strength, not with God's help. When making decisions next during the day, we tend to make those that efficiently benefit self. So when someone asks you to go out for lunch, you often just without a thought say, you know what, I'm not hungry. I already ate. Even though you don't listen to hear that person asking you to, you know, for a listening ear, for someone to just be their friend for 30 minutes, right? Because there's more work to do to help me. Or you're running late and you leave the dish for the next person in the workroom. Or you leave a load of dishes in the sink for someone else to do. Because they got to get going. And you don't do it with the heart of Jesus. So the other thing that builds up every day of our lives is guilt. Guilt sneaks up on you every day. By the way, initial guilt is never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. Initial guilt means that our conscience is working. And the Holy Spirit is indwelling. It means that our conscience is working like it's supposed to. And the Holy Spirit is pricking that conscience, saying, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. It's like the oversensitive fire alarm. You ever experienced one of those? I had some friends of, of Katie and I's, and I, we, we experienced this recently. Uh, on a trip to Cayman Brack, we had this oversensitive fire alarm. And it just went beep, beep, at the, at the faintest smoke. Beep, beep. That's what a right conscience and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit does. What we do with our guilt is often destructive. That's often where the problem lies. Usually, we mask it or we try to make up for guilt. And by the way, research shows that people fall usually along gender lines here. One survey I did said that 96% of women, or one survey I saw said 96% of women feel guilty at least once a day and half of women tick the box for four plus times a day, I feel guilty. And the response typically, one psychologist was saying, is you know, ramp up sympathy, charity, and guess what else? Religiosity. Do more for God. Do more that we think will please God. Constantly trying to make up for this onslaught of guilt. As author Erica Jong once said, show me a woman who doesn't feel guilt, and I'll show you a man. All right? And it's not, by the way, that men don't feel guilty. It's that they quickly mask the guilt by externalizing it. So we say things like, man, it was just the pressures of busy season. You know, it was the kids. The room was too hot. 
We'll find anything and say that was the reason. So men put on another face for guilt. Usually until someone, often another man, says, hey, bro, it's you. When someone confronts us with that, man, we as men sink. When we realize we have utterly, we've really been failing, and it's our fault, man, we sink. But there's good news. Jesus lived a guiltless life, worthy of the title, holy is the Lord, in verse 36. If you actually go back and read John's accounts of Jesus' murder trial, You'll see a wicked governor who, having heard all the evidence and had every motive to put Jesus to death to satisfy the crowd, said three times in John's gospel, I find no guilt in him. But but I find no guilt in him. I've heard everything there is to hear about this man, but I find no guilt in him. That's because he is the one, the only one who can regularly bear our guilt on his head. That's exactly what he did as our substitute. Exactly what he still does today, regularly. The composite of Aaron's crown was gold. Jesus' was thorns. O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, scornfully surrounded, with thorns your only crown. My Lord, what did you suffer? Was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but yours the deadly pain. So here I kneel, my Savior. I confess to deserve your place. I heard a story about a little boy who, uh, who killed accidentally his grandmother's pet duck. He hit the duck with uh, his slingshot. The boy didn't think anybody saw his foul deed. Get it, foul deed? I think they like that, yeah. And he went, so so he, <laughs> he buried the duck in the backyard without telling anybody. Later the boy found out that his sister, his older sister, had seen all of it happen, all of it take place. And now she had the leverage of his secret and used it. Whenever it was his sister's turn to wash the dishes, to wash the car, to take out the trash, she would whisper in his ear, remember the duck. And the little boy would then do what his sister should have done. Finally exhausted, the boy goes to his grandmother in great fear, confesses what he had done to her, To his surprise, his grandmother hugged him and said, with great tenderness, I was standing at the kitchen sink and I saw the whole thing. I forgave you then, and I was just wondering when you're going to get tired of your sister's blackmail and come and come to me with your guilt. Guys, in a nutshell this morning, just know this, you forget everything else. Jesus can be returned to entrusted on Mondays for burdens, for decisions, and for regular old but painful guilt. Pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that in your plan of giving us your word and, and, and this history of your people, you gave us images as well, pictures, because we are visual people, God. We love pictures. And this picture of Aaron's garment, what would have stood out to us, different from every other kind of priest's garment, the jewels over the heart, the jewels on the shoulder pads, the bright gold tiara headband on the head, representing you, Jesus. You're the one we can trust to, can return to at any moment, 
to shoulder every burden of our life. You're the one we can turn to, even after we've sort of tried to do decision-making on our own because we think we're capable on our own and our heart deceives us. You're the one we can turn to, to ask for help and for our next best decision. And finally, you're the one we can return to when we feel guilty, when we fail at the other things. We thank you that you bear our guilt continually, regularly. We're grateful. We say this by your precious blood. Amen.